good to have uh, Eric leading us in worship once again, and it's uh, good to see all of you here uh, in person, and for those watching over the wonder of the interweb, as they, as they say, you get to a certain age, you know, you can say certain things, in jest, I know it's the internet. <laughs> Uh, that uh, let's uh, as we go to a prayer. Um, I, I really am in, glad that we sang that last song. Um, if you have been watching the news, you know that there has just been a lot, a lot of evil taking place, and uh, with recent shootings and tragic uh, deaths as a result of those shootings, uh, the mounting uncertainty of how to handle an influx of of people crossing our southern border and how to do that in a just and compassionate way, um, we can be overwhelmed. And so it is good to be reminded that Christ holds us fast in the midst of great uncertainty. So please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we have acknowledged our sin before you, and in doing that, we also acknowledge our complete and utter dependence upon you for all things. Father, we, uh, in our foolishness, believe we are wise. You became a fool uh, to open our eyes. We, in our weakness, believed we were strong. You became weak to show that we were wrong. Father, we live in a world in which men boast of wisdom and strength but have neither. And we are left, O Lord God, as your people at times feeling that powerlessness and that lack of wisdom. And so we turn to you, who is the source of wisdom, who is the source of strength. We know, O Lord God, that the prophets have called us to serve you. And we know, as we read in in Amos, we are to seek good and not evil, that we may live And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. We ask, O Lord God, in times like this, sometimes with lament, how long before justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? And we see, O Lord, a fulfillment of that, at least partially, at the cross, where we see your justice executed upon our Savior We see righteousness flowing as an ever-flowing stream from his riven side, pierced by a spear, his his brow rather, pierced by thorns, his hands and feet. O Lord God, here we see justice and righteousness. Here we see faithfulness and mercy. Here we see grace and forgiveness, redemption and salvation. Here in the cross we see the strength to endure, the wisdom to know how to behave and to think in a way that allows us to hold fast to Christ while holding out the word of life. And so we ask, Lord, that as we gather here this morning to be replenished, to be reminded, to be refreshed, to be equipped, to be anointed anew by your Spirit, Remind us, O Lord God, it is for the purpose of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking walking humbly before you that we might indeed be when we leave here that which you have made us, and that is salt and light. 
that we would not simply just shake our heads and lament the evil in our world and the injustice therein, but, Father, with your help, in some small way, we might do justice and show, O Lord God, a better way, a more truthful, a more wise, a stronger way to live, to serve, to worship. Father, we turn our attention now to the hearing and the preaching of your word in the first letter of John. We pray, Father, that as we seek to know him better who died for us, may we also then in that pursuit know you better also. And we ask your Holy Spirit to help us in this endeavor as you have given him to us to equip us for that very task, that we might not only know Christ, but then, O Lord, be witnesses of him, for him, and to him, his great goodness, his mercy, his power, strength, and wisdom. Lord God, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's look at 1 John uh, verses 2. We're we're going to cover some ground that we covered last week. This is a sort of a, a long text And uh, we're going to read 18 to 27, and then we'll uh, spend the rest of the time looking at verses 20 to 27. John, in writing to his congregation, um, already exhorting them not to love the world, but to love Christ exclusively, now moves into another part of his letter by saying, Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. As I said, we begin this morning where we left off last Sunday, and I want to do that by reading the statement from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, in the chapter titled Hope. In the middle of that chapter, Lewis writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, That does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. And so I pointed out that Lewis is, is correct. The, the Bible makes that very clear as well, that we are made for another world. However, as I noted last week, that if you were to look at what Lewis writes at the end of that paragraph, that on our own, we, we cannot keep alive within ourselves the desire for our true country, which we shall not find till after death. That on our own, we cannot keep it from being snowed under or turned aside. That on our own, we cannot make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and then help others to do the same. We can't do any of that unless we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit who will then give us the strength to maintain that hope, to maintain the, the endurance and the willingness to press on toward another country and then the grace to help others do the same. Because at the heart of John's message, particularly in this particular paragraph, but throughout the entire letter of 1 John and even into 2 and 3 John, which, by the way, we'll also do because I know that there is... You've got to keep them all together, right? At the heart of what John is saying here is that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ is made for another world. And this conviction is rooted in two things. That they have been anointed by the Holy One and that they all have knowledge. And so as we begin to unpack that essential, fundamental message, that everyone, who, whoever confesses Jesus is the Christ, is made for another world, and that that confession rests on two things, having been anointed by the Spirit, and then having knowledge, here's how we'll look at the rest of that text. And so we'll look at the fact that we have an anointed to know the truth about Jesus, and that the anointing of the Spirit confirms what we've heard from the beginning about Him. And that the anointing of the Spirit reminds us that God built us to last. So we've been anointed by the Spirit to know the truth about Jesus. The anointing confirms the truth of what we've heard from the beginning. And that this anointing reminds us that God built us to last. So let's look at that. Let's look at the fact that we have been anointed to know the truth about who Jesus is. John begins this section with a very ominous line. It is the last hour. We talked about the last hour being that time between Christ's uh, uh, arrival his, and then his ascension and his return. And that last hour has uh, extended for over 2,000 years. And John says we know it's the last hour because there have been those who have gone out from us who have defected from the faith, who have defected from the church. They have come to believe the lie. They've come not to believe the truth about Jesus any longer. And yet in John, despite knowing this and despite telling his congregation this, despite all of these defections, John remains confident that his congregation will continue to abide in Christ. They will continue in practicing and doing and knowing and diving more deeply into the truth that they know. One of the constant themes throughout John's letters is this sense of abiding, this sense of relationship. 
John was there when Jesus gave that last word in John's gospel, particularly in John 15, about abide in me, and apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in me because I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And so John, who is now a very old man, writing to this congregation of probably mixed generations, is letting them know that the relationship that God has initiated with them through the hearing and the preaching of the gospel, this relationship that he has initiated and confirmed by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, this relationship that he has initiated and continues to affirm by the presence of Christ in their midst, in the hearing and the preaching of the gospel, that relationship is going to keep them connected to the source of their eternal life. And it's the Spirit's role to continue to help them grow and deepen in that sense of abiding. He says, even though there have been these antichrists, these folks who deny that Jesus is the Christ who have gone out from among you, he says, you have another anointing. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. They claim to have a different anointing. They claim to have a different kind of knowledge. But John says that anointing, that knowledge is not going to lead them into the truth or into a further relationship with the Son and the Father. I write to you, he says, because you know the truth. And in fact, the truth is living and vital and bearing fruit among you. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the the Son has the Father also. So there is, again, this emphasis on relationship, this emphasis on fellowship. Remember, that's how the letter starts. This is the impetus for why John writes the letter. He says, we have fellowship with the, with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's because of that relationship, John says, I write to you. So who is he talking about when he says the Holy One? So there are some questions that need to be answered as we, as we move on. And so you, you, you see the, the slide is there before you. you. Just pop up the slide there. There it is. Who is the Holy One? It's the Holy Spirit. What is the anointing that John is referring to? It's the Spirit himself. How is this anointing received? So this anointing of the Holy Spirit is received, says John, it's a spiritual anointing that comes through the hearing of the gospel, the Spirit doing His work of making us alive. We sang it in a song. Right? We had a head full of rocks and a heart made of stone, and then the Spirit opens our eyes and makes us alive. He anoints us, not physically with, with oil or water, but with the hearing of the Word right? that washes over us and enlivens us and circumcises a heart, so it takes out that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And the knowledge then that the Spirit gives us as a result of this anointing, says John, is the truth that Jesus is the Christ. So the Holy One is the Holy Spirit. The anointing is the Spirit Himself. This is what Jesus talks about on the last night of His life in John 16. Right? When the Spirit comes... Uh, he is going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what Jesus says in John 16, 8. And so John is simply reiterating, he is restating in a different way what Jesus said on the last night of his life to all the apostles there before he was arrested. That when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
And John says the anointing that he brings to us concerns those three things. Because when the Spirit anoints us with the gospel, says John, a couple of things happen. All right, first, he makes us aware that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He makes us aware that there is a breach in the relationship between God and us. And it is a breach that we ourselves have created by virtue of our rebellion, our sin, and our disobedience. Next, after making us aware of this guilt, this separation, this sin that puts the gap between God and us, He, the Spirit that is, makes us aware of the guilt of our sins. He shows us that because God is righteous and we are not, because God is holy and we are not, because God is good and we are not, we then deserve to spend eternity in hell separated from God's presence because of our sins. And just when it looks completely bleak, as if we are without hope and without God in the world, the Spirit then shows us the cross. And He shows us the the Savior there as the atoning sacrifice for sins and breathes faith into our heart that we might confess that Jesus is in fact who He says He is, who is Lord, who is Savior, who is the Anointed One. Because that's what Christ means. It means the Anointed One. And And so you can rightly say that we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to confess faith in the anointed one. Anointed to confess faith in the one who has been anointed and appointed to save us. And so to be anointed by the Holy Spirit is to know the truth about Jesus. And the truth about Jesus is that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And the only way you get to do that, the only way anyone says that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that he is a propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for sins, that he is our advocate with the Father. The only way that happens, says John, is by means of the Holy Spirit and the anointing. And whether or not John had conversation with the Apostle Paul, don't know, but he is also here, John, saying something that the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by means of the Holy Spirit. And so all those who are anointed by the Holy Spirit confess that Jesus is the Christ. And this confession, says John, this is the fundamental difference between those who abide in Jesus and continue to abide in him and those who do not. That whoever is anointed by the Holy Spirit will abide in Jesus because whoever is anointed by the Holy Spirit confesses that Jesus is the Christ, literally the anointed one. And it is this confession that separates those who abide in Christ and those who don't. This confession is what separates those who practice what Jesus preaches over the entire span of their life and those who do not. It separates those who have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and those who do not. That confession is emblematic of a relationship. And it's it's an exclusive relationship and it is an ongoing relationship. And it centers and it builds around that word abide, to remain, to be, to hold fast 
to the one who holds fast to us. And the, the, the song that we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast, is a strong encouragement that while our grip may weaken, his never does. So that to abide in Christ means we have committed ourselves to be held firmly by him for eternity, and he never lets go. As a matter of fact, Jesus says there's a double grip involved here because as we are in his hand, so is Christ in the Father's hand. This is why John emphasizes the importance of being in the Son because if you're in the Son, you have the Father. And wrapping all of that together, sort of another sense of insulation and protection is the anointing of the Spirit that continues to drive you further up and further into that knowledge, that relationship, that abiding then all for the purpose of bearing fruit. And that then becomes a source of our joy, that then becomes a source of our hope, that then becomes a source of our witness. This is the reason why we pass our faith on to our children, because it's easy to assume that. But John says, don't ever assume that abiding. Practice it by diving deeply into the Word and then living it out. It's often been said... That like one generation knows the gospel, the next generation assumes it, and then the next generation of that forgets it. And it's not as if we're put it in sort of dire terms, but there is that impetus of abiding, and so that we as as parents, grandparents, as mentors, it is really on us to live out that anointing and abide in Christ, says John because that implies a relationship with Christ that is vital and ongoing. Because to have a relationship with Christ is to have a relationship with the Father. And to have a relationship with Christ and the Father, says John, is to have eternal life. And it's that relationship with the Son and the Father, brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit, that's the soil from which grows John's declaration in verse 23, that whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's, there's no extra work that needs to be done to gain the Father's approval. What needs to be done is simply confess that Jesus is the Christ. And it's the same soil from which grows his appeal in verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. And so if the, if the Spirit confirms the truth what, about Jesus Christ, then the anointing of the Spirit then confirms the truth of what we've heard from the beginning. What have we heard from the beginning? We go back to chapter 1. It's the gospel. It's the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. It's the good news that says if we sin, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. It's the good news that to confess Jesus Christ is to have the Father, to have that relationship, to know the love of God that surpasses understanding. It is to possess the promise of eternal life. And that's a promise, and that's an experience, and that's a life that we experience now, not later on only. 
It's not exclusively reserved to a future time. Because whoever confesses Jesus Christ is Lord, says John, begins to understand how that life that he brings impacts what we do now. So that when we read a word, as I did in my pastoral prayer from Amos, about let justice flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, we're not looking only to some sort of eschatological end-time thing, but we're looking even now to be able to bring that into reality through practicing the things that Jesus preaches. And so we bring eternal life, if you will, we, we, we bring it into the very situation that God has called us to walk in. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus, in, after acknowledging the fact that he has glorified the Father, asks the Father now to glorify the Son because of his work that he has done. In verse 3 of John 17, Jesus talks about what eternal life is. And he says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We know the true God. We know the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit that takes the knowledge of the Father, the Word of the Son, and allows us to experience and then to practice that eternal life now. So you ask a question, and because I like to make lists, and because I know some of you like lists, what do we mean when we say eternal life here and now? What does that look like? And so I've just written down a few things, just some examples of what eternal life looks like and how we experience it. This is a part of it, <laughs> right? Because we will spend eternity with one another in God's presence. So gathering for worship is how we experience eternal life. Why are we here if it not for the fact that we have somehow experienced something that is from another world, that is from outside of ourselves that brings us here? So we experience eternal life every time we gather for worship. Every time we keep Jesus' word, we experience eternal life. We are introducing, a, if you will, a foreign idea into a world that has very little knowledge, if any at all, about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And if they know of Jesus at all, it's some warped Sunday school idea or some secularized malignment of what the gospel is or what the church is. So when we experience Jesus by keeping his word, we are then able to help others know what that means. We experience eternal life every time we sense God's presence. You go to prayer, you open the word of God, you encourage a friend, you talk to someone about Jesus. You're bringing eternal life into that moment. We experience eternal life every time we teach our children to practice what Jesus preaches. So when you pray with your children at night, when you lead them in Bible study, when you have a talk with them on their way to some practice or just watching a, a program together, that is a moment where eternal life is present. You're introducing them to someone who is greater than we ourselves. And so we experience eternal truth every time, uh, eternal life every time we tell the truth. It ought not take appearance before a congressional committee and threat of perjury <laughs> to force people to tell the truth. We experience eternal life every time we turn the other cheek. We experience eternal life every time we forgive others just as the Lord has forgiven us. 
We experience eternal life every time we pray for those who have wronged us and with those who we disagree and who disagree with us, I might add. We experience eternal life every time we receive comfort, guidance, wisdom, and insight that we did not know and that we, we know did not originate from any human source that came directly from God through his Holy Spirit. We experience eternal life every time we sense the Spirit interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. We experience eternal life every time we gather for corporate worship or open the Bible as part of a community group study of the Word. We experience eternal life every time we resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands and trust God to give us what we need when He knows we need it because He knows what we need before we ask Him for it. I read that again. I like that part. <laughs> That's right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? When we resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands and trust God to give us what we need, when he knows we need it, because he knows what we need before we ask him for it. We find that in Matthew 5, and I think just before Jesus leads us, uh, I think Matthew 6, before he teaches the Lord's Prayer. And then lastly, we experience eternal life when we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before the Lord, and we find ways to do that. It's interesting, too, that this idea of relationship is not, it did not originate with John. It, it comes from the words of Jesus himself. In John 14, 23, again, John is present when Jesus says this. All he is doing in his letters is saying back to his congregation everything that he has been discipled by through Christ, now empowered by the Spirit to share it. So Jesus says in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And what's the result of that? My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So you keep Jesus' word. The Father loves. Why? Because we love the Son. How do we know we love the Son? We love his word. We love his word enough to keep his word. That all comes through the power of the Spirit. So you have a Trinitarian aspect happening here. The Spirit empowers us to love and obey. The Father comes. He loves us. And the Father and Son make their home in us. They abide in us. They dwell in us. So that we're able to abide in Him. What we have heard from the beginning is that the only true God who dwells in unapproachable light, this is the miracle of the gospel, that the only true God who dwells in unapproachable light has made Himself known in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That the more we strive to know this Son, with the help of the Spirit, the more this Son, His life, flows into us and out of us. The Spirit then abides in us and we bear fruit. The more we realize that we are created in His image and likeness, the more we realize that God is actually seeking after worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And it allows us to witness with confidence. And I love Pastor Paul's prayer and confession that one of the things that we need to overcome as we witness for Christ is fear of man. We live in an age when to claim the exclusivity of the way to know eternal life is through knowing Christ and Christ only. That is offensive in a pluralistic age. It's, it's offensive in an age of wokeism. Right? It's offensive. 
But it's the very offense of the cross, says Jesus, that sparks that relationship. The apostle Paul found the cross offensive until Christ appeared to him. And Paul realized, oh, so that's what you're like. So let us have the the grace and the courage to speak the truth because the anointing of the Spirit confirms what we've heard from the beginning. And then lastly, the anointing of the Spirit reminds us that God built us to last. It's in verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Again, John is restating here something that he heard Jesus say way back in his gospel, and he records it in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, said Jesus, but I chose you. But he did more than choose us. He appointed us. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So here's this idea of God choosing. And so as one who is chosen and appointed by Jesus, John writes to a congregation that is also chosen and appointed by Jesus to go and bear fruit. So you can even envision that John is saying, go to those who have gone out from you and try to win them back. Go out to those who have defected from the faith and and share with them what you have heard from the beginning. Even if they have proved themselves not to be of us, they can still return to us if we go to them. So it's not a matter of just saying, draw a line and say, us and them. I've got mine. If they've left, it's too bad for them. No, the idea is you go, because when we were lost and on our own, God sent his son to search for us. He left the 99, and he came to find you and me and bring us back into the fold. We have been anointed by the Spirit so that we don't need anyone to teach us what we already know already by virtue of what the Spirit has taught us, which is that Jesus is the Christ. It's not that John is saying you don't need any human teachers. If that were true... I would not have a role. (laughs) So it's not the fact that we don't need human teachers. We need human teachers to explain to us what the gospel is and all of that. But John is talking about something else, a knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They know the truth because they've been anointed by the Spirit to confess the truth about Christ. And the more that, this is another side, the more that we trust the truth, I like doing these things. So like, I like building. Paul does this in his letters. I like building stairs like a carpenter, right? One stair at a time. Andy Bernard, right? One step. The more we trust the truth, the more we trust Jesus. The more we trust Jesus, the more we practice what he preaches. The more we practice what Jesus preaches, the more we realize the importance of abiding in him. The more we realize the importance of abiding in Jesus, the more we'll make a habit of praying to the Father in Jesus' name. The more we make a habit of praying to the Father in Jesus' name, the more we realize he made us for another world. The more we realize God made us for another world, the more we realize God built us to last. I don't know how many of you are baseball fans. 
I'm a baseball fan. My team right now is doing terrible. You can guess who that might be. Uh, the Yankees are just in bad shape. But April 15th, 1947 is a significant date in the history of Major League Football, uh, Major League Baseball. It's a significant date in the history of our nation because on that day, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American to play baseball at a major league level. He was in a starting lineup, I believe, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. You can, if you're familiar with his story, you may have watched or seen the film 42, which I recommend to you as a, just a, a wonderful film, an exploration of the humanity and the, the, the pain that he endured. There are a couple of scenes in that film that I think illustrate what John is getting at here. One scene is where Chadwick Bosman, who played um, Jackie Robinson in the film, is summoned to the office of Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Dodgers. And Ricky tells Robinson his plan to have him start for the Brooklyn Dodgers, the white Brooklyn Dodgers, he tells him. But he says, I need to know one thing. I know that you can hit behind the runner. I know that you can field your position. I know that you can throw. What I need to know is, can you control your temper? And he begins to lay out the scenarios which might cause him to lose his temper. You're checking into a hotel and the bellhop won't give you the pen to sign your name. You stop at a restaurant on, on a bus with the rest of the team and the waiter won't serve you. And he begins going through this and intensifies the discrimination and racism he'll face and even at one point calling him a name. And at that point, Robinson rises out of his chair and he looks at Ranch Ricky and says, so, you want a man who has, a, who has the guts not to fight back. And Ricky, as if realizing what he says in that moment, says, no, no, no. I need a man with the guts not to fight back. You fast forward a few moments in the film, and Robinson is preparing to head north after spring training in Florida with the team. And he's saying farewell to his wife. And his wife, Rachel, says to him, you're getting close now. And the closer you get, the worse they'll be. Don't let them get to you. And Robinson looks at her and says, I won't. God built me to last. Earlier in that moment, when he is standing in Branch Ricky's office, and Richie, Ricky tells him, I need a man with the guts not to fight back. Can you do it? Like our Savior, you've got to turn the other cheek. Can you do that? And Robinson says, give me a uniform. Give me a number on my back. I'll give you the guts. We've been given a uniform. We've been given a number. And the guts to fight back, that comes from someplace else. That comes from an anointing. That comes from a knowledge. That comes from an abiding. That comes from having received something that this world cannot give us. God built us to last because he has anointed us with his spirit to know the truth, to love the truth, and to keep on practicing the truth until either we breathe our last 
or Christ comes back. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for having received from you an anointing, a word, a life, a confirmation that we have been made for a world beyond this one, but a world, O Lord God, that will be remade, renewed, and restored. Help us, Lord God, to abide in you and to do what you command us. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.